voice and the various expressions that, uh, that, we've, that we've sawn, that we've been a part of this morning. There's a lot of moving parts here this morning and a lot of time that went into the service. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think of the, the youth ministry and the, and the, the drama that we just saw. Uh, the children's ministry and the things that they were doing. And you need to know that the bread that, we're, that we will be receiving for communion shortly was actually also made by the children's ministry yesterday. And, and so it's, it's one of those, it's one of the things I love about this church is that, the, that when we say we want to be a multi-generational, intergenerational church and, and, a, and have our services reflect that, that it's not just window dressing, it's not just you know, a good idea, but we don't, we don't actually do it. Um, that we can actually be able to have children and seniors and, and teenagers and, and people of all ages be a part of a Sunday morning experience because we believe that every member of the body of Christ has, some, has something to contribute to each other. So um, it's worth celebrating, and, and uh, so thank you for those of you that were a part of the service so far. As I was watching the drama that we just witnessed, it struck me that as much as it was, as much as it was a dramatization of the various struggles that exist for, for many people in the world, I think in one form or another, if I, if I were to spend a minute of honest reflection of my own heart, my own life, I would realize really quickly that I could probably relate to the girl more than I want to admit. For, for Rachel, the girl in the skit here, we saw how, how money was was a priority, became a driving priority for her, or acceptance from others, or her focus on her appearance, or seeking an escape in one form or another. For the skit, it was, it was pills. But for others, it can be video games, or shopping, or food, or exercise. And ultimately, what Rachel discovers in this, in this drama is that, that many of these things, all of these things, have ultimately left her hopeless where she devoted her time, she devoted her energies, her passions, and herself towards priorities that take the place of God, or at best, just distract her from God. Hopelessness is a painful place to be, where you don't know where to turn because, because it, well, it seems as though every, any possible route leads to a destination that you just don't want to be at. 2,000 years ago, Three days before the resurrection, there's 11 men who had followed Jesus for three years. They had walked where he had walked. They had listened and learned and loved like Jesus did. And then on that Friday, they witnessed their teacher, their rabbi, their friend, their Lord, be beaten, mocked, and murdered as they helplessly watched it happen. Like the girl, like Rachel in our, in our drama, it's one thing, I think, to, to place our hope in things like power, people, and possessions. But these 11 men, they didn't do that. In fact, they had chosen well. They had chosen the Lord. They had chosen Jesus. They had put their faith in Him, believing that the claims that He had made were, in fact, true. They had witnessed miracles on top of miracles. And they had experienced life change in themselves, and they had seen that life change in others. And they had their hearts open to a reality beyond what they understood from the religious teachings of that day. They had their hearts opened beyond the values of the world. They had their hearts opened to a heavenly kingdom beyond anything that they could comprehend. And then on that Friday, he was betrayed, crucified, and killed for sins that he didn't commit. 
and the hope of the world seemingly had been defeated by the world. Certainly the disciples had experienced a a deep grief and mourning for a friend, a teacher, a brother. But I think it was more than that. It was the purpose that Jesus had called them into. That purpose was now gone. The promises of new life that Jesus had spoke about, that he had taught about for three years was, was empty. I think it's almost impossible to to fully articulate the depth of grief that the disciples were likely experiencing in those days after the crucifixion. Questioning and asking, asking, have we been deceived for those past three years? Reflecting on the sacrifices that they had made as they followed Jesus around Israel. Questioning whether Jesus was the Son of God that he claimed he was considering that maybe the the Pharisees and the crowd, maybe they were right. Maybe Jesus was a heretic. Maybe he was just a crazy man. Questioning whether Jesus was the Messiah that Isaiah had prophesied about hundreds of years before. Questioning if Jesus really was the the new covenant that he proclaimed even a day before his own death. Fast forward 2,000 years. I think we still wrestle with some of those same questions. Is who Jesus claimed to be true? Is the miracles he performed just stories? Is everything we read in the Bible true? And the world ponders these questions, and we debate these points. And as a follower of Jesus, you and I may not be able to answer all the questions that the world has. Truthfully, you and I may not be able to answer all the questions we have. Certainly this idea of a man rising from the dead three days after he died seems absurd. But it's in Jesus' resurrection that we discover that all the hope that the disciples placed in Jesus wasn't just a concept in, wasn't just a concept or good ideas of, of unanswerable questions, but that it was in fact true. That the claims Jesus made about himself, no matter how difficult they were to believe, were in fact true. That the claims Jesus made, that he is the resurrection and the life, that it isn't just theory, but that it was actually fulfilled that the hope and faith the disciples placed in him was affirmed upon his resurrection. Earlier this week, I was listening to the radio, and, uh, and they, were, there was an interview, they were interviewing a journalist, the, the guys on the radio, and, and he, was, he was talking about, he was, I was actually the sports, sports channel, that's the only radio station I listened to, um, and, uh, but the, the guy that they were interviewing, he, ta- he said that from his perspective, that the, the, the basis for all religions is that if you do enough good things, God will reward you. basis for all religion, world religions is that if you do enough good things, God will reward you. Now, it sounds good. Sounds like, it, you know, if I do enough good things, I feel like generally I could, my good things outweigh my bad things. That seems, I'm okay, I'm okay with that. Truth is, is he's wrong. The Christian tradition isn't based on what you and I can do to gain favor from God. And in turn, he will then reward us. 
That's one of the distinctions that makes up what it means to be a Christian, what Christianity is about. Where at its roots, there is an understanding that although we all want to earn God's favor, deep down, if we are honest with ourselves, we all fall short. If we peel back the layers, we realize very quickly that we are lacking in one way or another. And as much as I want to do good things, as much as I'm sure all of you want to do good things, that we are all lacking in some way or another. No matter how good of a father I want to be, no matter how great of a husband I think I am. So, if we were to look at a sliding scale, for example, on a continuum, continuum of goodness, we'd say, well, this is, the, this is the good side over here, this is the bad side. And we'd say, well, people on the bad side, that would be people like Hitler or Stalin or, Billy, or, or Osama bin Laden. But on the scale of goodness over here, we might find people like Gandhi or Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. Romans chapter 3, Paul says that, that there's no one good, not even one. That means that even men and women like Gandhi and Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, they, even they fall short. Even if, even if we peel back the layers of their lives, then we would see, you know what, they are still lacking in one form or another. The Bible calls that sin. And that because of our sin, that we can't measure up to that, that final definition of goodness, that stand, perfect standard of goodness. The standard is Jesus. If we look at that good standard, that is Jesus. And it's that sin that separates us from God. It's that gap between where we are and where Jesus is. That's that gap there that exists. That is where the, that's where the sin exists that separates us from the being the goodness that we so desperately want. In fact, the Bible says that the separation leads not to just physical death, but actually eternal death separated from God because God cannot be in, in partnership, in relationship with someone who has sin in their life. The good news is that because of Jesus, that we don't have to, as that journalist said, do enough good things and God will reward us. Because we will always be pursuing but never achieving. Always fighting but never winning. Always moving but never advancing. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But, but, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul writes these words, he understands that victory isn't from our efforts, no matter how great our efforts are. Even Paul, he, Paul understands that he lived that life. He lived that life of, of trying to do good things, trying to do helpful things, trying to do things in the name of God, in the name of religion, in the name of his culture, or even in his best interests. And it wasn't enough. And as Paul writes this letter, this, this portion of, of the letter to the Corinthians, he's actually quoting from, a, from the minor prophet Hosea. Hosea is, is this book about scandalous grace, where Hosea repeatedly extends a ridiculous amount of love and grace to his, to his wife, Gomer. Even though she continues to prostitute herself to others. And ultimately, this, this story, this, this letter, this, this book of Hosea becomes this, this 
rich expression of God's deep, scandalous love for us. See, I think Paul understood God's, God, the richness of God's grace. And he realized that his effort wasn't enough. And Paul discovers that victory is only through Jesus. The victory that Paul is referring to here is why we celebrate Good Friday. And it seems morbid and it seems dark to say we celebrate Good Friday. We celebrate the man who died on a cross. We celebrate it because we know the story isn't finished yet. We know that that's just the first part. We know that it's through Jesus also that we have victory over sin. That it's not our efforts that bring victory. It's God's sacrifice motivated by love for us. Apostle Paul also writes in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, even while we were still on that spectrum of goodness that we can't measure up, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's literally nothing that can separate you and I from God's love for us. It's also an acknowledgement that there's nothing that you can do to earn victory over your sins. You can't suddenly leapfrog and get to there. There's nothing you can do to get there. That gap will always exist without Jesus. And so we recognize on Good Friday that Jesus filled that gap, that gap that existed from where we are to where he is. He filled that gap by pouring himself out and giving all of himself for all of humanity, for all of, mankind, for all of time. He died the death that we deserve. But this is Resurrection Sunday. That's part two of the Eastern narrative. Jesus overcame death so that we would have new life in him. It's through Jesus that we have victory from our sins if we choose to put our hope in Jesus and know him personally. And through the resurrection that we celebrate today, God won the eternal battle over Satan for our salvation. Today, we celebrate that, that you and I are not too broken, too wounded, too good or too bad to be saved by Jesus. He was enough. Because here's the thing. If we say that my sin is too great, my past is too shameful, my weaknesses are too much, then we say the cross wasn't enough. The cross wasn't enough for me. His death was enough. The cross was enough. And so this morning, we get to celebrate a resurrected Savior. Death couldn't defeat God's plan for the redemption of this world. There is nothing too big, too broken, too desolate for our God. And hope exists wherever Jesus is present. It's not power, people, or possessions. It's Jesus. So today, we celebrate part two. We celebrate and recognize that not even death was too powerful for Jesus. We celebrate that your sins and your shortcomings, my sins, my shortcomings, are not too great for Jesus. And the resurrection becomes a powerful demonstration of the conquering power of God, where we discover that nothing is too big for God to overcome. 
and it displays God's deep longing to be in a relationship with you. Reconciling us to him so that we aren't separated eternally from him in our sin. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, to fill that gap. It's through Jesus that we have hope, strength, encouragement, and abundant life. The message of the resurrection is that there is hope that we don't need to live our lives hopeless anymore, but Jesus, but instead God wants us to experience a new life through him. So when the disciples finally discover in the midst of their, their grieving and their mourning, when, when they discover that Jesus is in fact alive, everything changed. Their lives, the trajectory of their lives shifted again. And these 11 men went on to live lives completely and utterly devoted to the cause of Jesus and his kingdom. And these 11 men began, began to travel around the world sharing the message of a God who loved humanity so much that he was willing to die for them. And then he rose again. And this began a, a movement for the next 2,000 years where that started with 11 men, now is over 2 billion people worldwide where these men had previously been timid, afraid, and lost, were now assertive, bold, and full of joy. Where these men embraced the reality, no matter how absurd it might be as truth, they believed it was worth giving everything up for, including their lives. They lived out the hope and love they had in Jesus, and it changed them. When people looked at them, they saw Jesus instead of Peter, or Paul, or John. Mark or Luke or whomever you want, it became about Jesus. Their lives became a reflection of the deep love Jesus has for you and I. Like the disciples this morning, we acknowledge, we celebrate, we say we place our hope in Jesus because today he is risen. This morning we are going to receive communion. We receive communion this morning because I think it's an important expression for us to celebrate the new covenant found in Jesus. So those of you that are, that are helping with communion, if you could come join me up front, that would be great. As we've already shared, that the bread is a reflection of, is a symbol of Christ's body given for us. We also know that the bread and the juice are a symbol of a new covenant that Jesus made with us. It's not about sacrifice, it's about his sacrifice.